We have some exciting news to share. Future Hindsight is now in partnership with Lyceum, a new audio platform for the curious and creative to listen, learn, and connect. Sounds like it's a perfect place for us. Here's a message from the founder. Hi, I'm Zachary Davis. I'm the host of two podcasts, Ministry of Ideas, which explores the philosophy behind everyday concepts, and Writ Large, a new podcast about the books that change the world. I love educational podcasts. I love listening to them and talking about them. I want everyone to have that chance. And so I've built a new platform called Lyceum, which makes it easy to discover great educational podcasts and have conversations about them. There are more than a million podcasts out there. We've done the hard work of sifting through them and finding only the very best education shows to listen to. Shows like the one you're listening to right now. So if you love learning, Download Lyceum today on the App Store or Google Play, or visit us at lyceum.fm. That's L-Y-C-E-U-M dot F-M. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Today, we're doing a special COVID-19 episode. By now, Americans everywhere feel the effects of this unprecedented pandemic. Unfortunately, as with so many parts of our society, Americans are not feeling it equally. For millions of Americans living near or below the poverty line, the consequences of COVID-19 are catastrophic. Although coronavirus coverage monopolizes the news cycle, I feel the conversation surrounding extreme poverty and homelessness is lacking. In this episode, I check in with several former Future Hindsight guests, get their perspective on COVID's impact, and learn what we need to do to help the most vulnerable members of our society through this international tragedy. One of them is Stephen Pimper, a nationally recognized expert on poverty, homelessness, and U.S. social policy. He's also a faculty fellow at the Carsey School of Public Policy at the University of New Hampshire. We talk about the effects of the pandemic on the poor and why immediate cash transfers are critical for them. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Mila. Nice to speak with you again. So over the weekend, we both read that COVID-19 might be the great equalizer for our society, economically speaking. What do you say? I say that that's wrong, like all such events. And if you think about, say, going back to Hurricane Katrina, what these kind of cataclysms more typically do is expose just how fragile particular groups and particular places are. So if we think about the United States today, we know that poor and low-income people have higher rates of asthma, of diabetes, of hypertension, of HIV. These are precisely the things that make them more vulnerable to COVID-19. Those patterns are even worse among people of color. And as we are starting to see data on mortality and infections coming in from places like Milwaukee, Chicago, and D.C., what we are seeing is a radically higher rate of both infection and death among particularly African-Americans. If you think about the jobs that poor and low-income people do, they are much more likely to be in the service industry and therefore much more likely to still be having to go out to work, which not only puts them at great risk, right? But think about the kinds of challenges that that builds in regarding childcare right now that all the schools are closed. And of course, those are the very same households that are least likely to have access to healthcare. 
And because in the United States, we tie our healthcare systems to employment, people are losing healthcare just at the moment when they are losing their jobs during a pandemic. Think about homeless shelters. It is almost impossible to maintain safe distance in a homeless shelter. This is true of prisons as well. At the same time, we've got millions of people who are in the midst of, who are already been thrown out of, or are going to get thrown out of work. Uh, I read something today that somewhere in the neighborhood of one third of all 18 to 34 year olds have lost their jobs. So we've got unemployment systems that are not well designed to begin with, completely strained. And the emergency relief checks that are going to be coming out of DC because we don't have systems to do that are likely to reach the people who most need them last. And then on top of that, we've got emergency food systems that are completely and totally overwhelmed more than usual. Donations from supermarkets are down and demand is way up. So we're seeing all kinds of emergency feeding programs turning people away. Meals on Wheels programs are having a horrible shortage of volunteers. And then the last thing that I would point out is mental health, which is already in the United States, much worse among low-income and poor people. Those systems are going to be completely and totally overwhelmed, given that what we are going through is something akin to mass trauma. This is really the worst case scenario for everybody in ways that I think we can't even fully comprehend for many more months, if not years to come. In order to avoid the very worst outcomes, what can we still do right now? First of all, Congress should get back to D.C. and not be on break. We need to get more money into the hands of more people more quickly. I know that there are lots of states that are doing variations on suspending evictions and suspending foreclosures. I think we need a national policy not merely to delay the paying of rent and mortgages, but to wipe out those obligations. If you're a low-income person who is barely getting by under the best of times and you've just lost your job, having three months in which you don't have to pay rent doesn't do you any good if all of that rent is going to come due in the fall, right? So that needs to be wiped out. There have been a number of proposals also to eliminate all or parts of student debt. That's an easy way to reduce the outflows that are going into to the households that are going to be most hard hit and increase the chances that once the economy starts opening back up again, that people are actually able to spend and not facing mass evictions, which I think if, if we don't do something is what we're going to see when we think we're coming out the other end of this. Right, right. Totally agree. How do you think we can get cash faster to this population? Because right now you have to have filed your 2018 taxes and essentially it's an advanced tax rebate to you, which is totally ridiculous. But yeah, how do we get cash into these people's hands? Uh, it's a problem, right? Because, I mean, there have been people who have been talking for years about using the Postal Service to solve the problem of unbanked people. If we had done that and every American had a bank account run by the post office, right, we could flip a switch and they dump money into people's accounts. Boom. 
There have been a couple of folks who have talked about distributing debit cards, and I don't know enough about the mechanics of that to know whether that will wind up being quicker or not. I know that people worry about there being increased risk of fraud with something like that, but I think that is the last of our concerns right now. If we can't get more money out faster, then we need to stop the outflows in the most fragile households by eliminating or suspending debt obligations. Who can best explain how we can transfer cash? We check back in with GiveDirectly, the first and largest nonprofit organization that gives cash directly to people in poverty. This time, we're joined by Joe Houston, the managing director. He shares what they learned with cash transfers in the aftermath of hurricane relief in Texas and Puerto Rico and how they are reaching the needy and providing thousands with critical funds right now. In 2017, you handed out $1,500 debit cards for hurricane relief in Texas and Puerto Rico. What did you learn there that can help us with COVID-19? We learned a few things. Part of our experience in Texas and Puerto Rico just helped reinforce the basic lessons around cash transfers. The basic rationale for cash in general is that it's hard and often expensive to try to guess what other people want versus just giving them some money and letting them buy what they want. People had different needs and so had different priorities for where they would put the first thousand dollars that they got. The second thing which I think is relevant for the COVID-19 response is people are often pulling together help from different sources. Hopefully that includes a big government response. It may also include response from other nonprofits or from family members. And cash actually fits well in that kind of patchwork of assistance people put together for themselves because it helps them put money towards whatever the gaps end up being. Sometimes the gap is just not enough support. Sometimes it's having trouble paying rent. Or we saw this recently, buy some cheap laptops because now my kids have to do remote schooling. I think the last thing we learned, which uh, we just started applying actually this weekend in the COVID-19 response, is we've improved how we do the payments themselves. For Texas and Puerto Rico response, we basically had thousands of debit cards mailed to us, and then we distributed those by hand and then remotely loaded them. Obviously, with uh, COVID-19, it's not uh, healthy or safe to do a lot of hand delivery of things. And so we set up a system where we're able to pay people remotely and basically pay them to these electronic wallets managed by a company called HyperWallet. And then they're able to cash out the balance in those wallets to their bank account if they have one or to MoneyGram if if that's what they'd prefer for people who are unbanked or even just to get a debit card shipped directly to them. The constraints of the pandemic helped us create a system actually that I think is better for our recipients and is a little bit lower touch in the end. Wow, that's pretty cool. So do you need a smartphone for this? You do need a smartphone or some way to access the internet, at least temporarily. I have a question for the people who are unbanked. How do you find them? This is a a classic problem. And I think one of the hardest things about who to help in in a crisis like this is that often the sort of most vulnerable may be hardest to help or hard to even identify. People who are unbanked or likely to be left out by a lot of the government response. So we're doing two things currently. We are first partnering with a company called Propel that helps people manage SNAP food assistance benefits. That gives us access to a group of people who, before the crisis, were all externally verified to be SNAP food stamp recipients. And then we're reaching out to people within that app and just letting them sign up. That gives us access to 
some people who are unbanked, some people who are banked, they'll all have phones and they'll all have some level of need. The problem with that approach is you may still leave some people out. You might want to be reaching people who are undocumented or something who, because they are undocumented, probably also aren't receiving food stamps. We're exploring partnerships with other nonprofits as well. We have just set up one with a nonprofit called One Fair Wage, which basically is an organizing nonprofit for tipped and service workers. And they're doing their own vetting, having people fill out a form and then talk to somebody on the phone to identify needy folks who were tipped or, or service workers. It's tough to make sure you're reaching a sort of broad set of people and reaching the people who need it the most. And there, there's different trade-offs between cost of reaching somebody and the confidence you can have that you've reached the right person, depending on the approach. But, but those are some of the things we're doing. How can you make sure that the people that you're reaching are not also already being reached by the government? The government response to date has been pretty small and hasn't even gone out yet, while the need is already pretty severe. For example, 88% of Propel users who were earning an income previously are earning less. And that was just as of a week ago. And I, I think that's likely to get worse until the government response is in full swing. And even after the government response, people will still need a lot of funds. In the optimistic scenario where the government does really step in, I think that means that we'll have to shift towards groups that you can sort of logically deduce will be left out. Folks who are undocumented, people who haven't filed taxes in the last two years. How much money have you given out so far? And how much do you give per person? We've given out $1.2 million dollars And each check has been $1,000 for everybody. There's a trade-off between reaching more people or reaching fewer people more intensely. And $1,000 was the medium point we chose kind of between those different concerns. $1,000 isn't much. And in many places, it won't pay your rent. But it'll go a long way to put food on the table or pay your phone bill. Well, it's one thing to be out of work or to have no money for rent. It's something else entirely to be homeless. How can you stay in lockdown if you don't have a home? To better understand how COVID has disrupted the lives of America's homeless populations, we turn to Maria Foscarinas, the founder and director of the National Law Center on Homelessness and Poverty. We talk about some successes right now in helping localities house the homeless, getting funding in the latest stimulus bill, and finding effective ways to give them cash. Thank you, Maria, for being back on Future Hindsight. Since you work with the homeless, can you give us a little bit of an update of what's happening with that population right now in the face of COVID-19? Sure. Thank you. This is a very, very vulnerable group of people. People experiencing homelessness tend to have greater health problems. They have less access to health care. People who are in shelters are at high risk because shelters tend to be overcrowded and don't have the ability to quarantine anybody who may be ill. People living outside are also highly vulnerable. They have difficulty self-quarantining as well because they literally have no place inside to be. There is also, in both circumstances, very limited access to sanitation, to frequent hand washing, to 
maintaining personal hygiene, all of the things that we have all been advised to do are very difficult or even impossible for people who are homeless. We have been advocating for special assistance that takes this into account. And we have a set of recommendations on our website. And we were very pleased that just about two weeks ago, the CDC adopted some of them and issued guidelines for unsheltered homeless people that uh, most significantly say that the top priority is getting people into housing and that the people who are camped out in public places should not be swept away. This is a common tactic used by cities to remove encampments by literally forcing people out and destroying their provisional self-constructed shelter and forcing them to move to another part of the city. So the CDC accepted our recommendation that this was not a good idea, that instead people should be placed into housing. We are now working hard to promote this to get cities to actually comply. So how are they getting people into housing? There are a few good examples. Last weekend, advocates in New Orleans were able to get the city to, instead of displacing people from their encampment, to have them placed directly into a hotel. This was almost 200 people who were homeless were placed directly into a hotel. The city of Seattle actually bought an old hotel that was unused and converted it into housing for people who are homeless and living outside. So these are examples of what communities can do. And there is plenty of vacant hotel space now because people are not traveling. The other thing that I'll mention is that in the stimulus bill that was just enacted, we and others were able to get $4 billion included to help homeless people. So this is $4 billion in aid to go to providers of shelter, of services, and of housing for people who are homeless. And we are hopeful that there will be an additional bill and that we can get some additional relief there. So if there is another bill, which I think you're right, will definitely happen, what else are you looking for to help this population? Well, for one thing, additional funding is needed. We had a research study that indicated $15 billion was the minimum needed, and of that we got $4 billion. The other issue that we're concerned about is the cash relief. So there's a lot of talk about the $1,200 of relief that is supposed to go to every American adult, and That is important, but it leaves out a lot of people, including homeless people, because the way it works depends on having a bank account. Initially, you had to have filed tax returns. Supposedly, that requirement is being loosened, but only up to a certain extent. We're still concerned about people 
who don't have bank accounts, who don't have social security numbers, or who don't have IDs, many people who are homeless don't have these documents because of their situation and don't have bank accounts because of their homelessness. So we need to figure out an alternative means for them to get this relief, which they desperately need. What do you think is the most effective solution to get cash into the hands of the homeless at this time? Well, we are still working on figuring this out, but one idea is through providers, through soup kitchens, through service groups, through shelters, through social service agencies. There has to be a lot of outreach because people tend to be marginalized and not following necessarily the latest news. So there has to be a special effort to reach them. Once again, we're talking about cash relief, which drives home just how important it is that cash transfers be part of the response to COVID-19. Last but not least, we catch up with Robin Steinberg, the founder and CEO of The Bail Project, an unprecedented national effort to combat mass incarceration by transforming the pretrial system in the U.S. As I record this, thousands of Americans sit in crowded jail cells risking exposure to COVID-19 for simply being too poor to afford their own bail. We discuss how cash bail is now more than just the ticket to freedom and what we can each do to help some of the most vulnerable Americans held by our penal system during this crisis. We've read everywhere now that the prison population is especially vulnerable to COVID-19 and there have already been outbreaks in several prisons. And this is very unfairly also touching people who are in jail while they're not able to afford bail. Can you tell us a little bit more about what's happening on the ground? Sure. So jails are unfortunately the perfect incubator for this deadly virus. So it is imperative that we all act quickly to bring people out of these overcrowded jails and to safety. At the Bail Project, we are working frantically to bring home as many people as we can as quickly as we can. And it's important to remember that, you know, bail is set before somebody has been convicted of a crime. So the folks that we are paying bail for and bringing people home have not been convicted of a crime. They're simply there because they don't have enough money in their bank account to pay their cash bail. So it's a situation where poverty would actually become the possible road to a death penalty where because somebody can't pay their bail, they're going to be directly in harm's way in a jail where practicing safe distancing is impossible and where there's very little access to healthcare at the moment that somebody becomes sick. So it is literally a matter of life and death at this point. So are there any examples of states where people have been able to get off without paying bail? We have seen in the different sites that we're in across the country, we're in 20 of them, we have seen local jurisdictions releasing large numbers of people quickly, not quickly enough and not getting to everybody, but they're making real efforts in that direction. We would urge, obviously, to release more people before it's too late and to work with more urgency. We're trying to step in after these initial releases happened to the people that have been left behind and trying to figure out how we can move our operations so that we can begin to bail people out who are still locked up because they don't have enough money to pay their bail. So what's the difference between the people that you're still trying to get out by paying their bail and the people that a state or a local jurisdiction may have already released? 
What we always remind ourselves at the Bail Project is no matter what you're charged with, you have not yet been convicted of a crime and no evidence has been put forth to prove that you are in fact guilty. Sometimes I think jurisdictions leave people behind who are charged with something more than a minor misdemeanor or a minor nonviolent low-level offense. So we're really looking at who else is being left behind no matter what they're charged with and really thinking seriously about who are the most vulnerable folks left in jail, who are the most vulnerable in terms of health and age Where can we intervene to not just provide bail assistance for folks, but to also make sure that when they come out, they have the services they need to support them? And that's really important. We're trying really hard to work with jurisdictions to make sure that those releases are done in an organized way where people get the resources they need and get notifications that they need. And then once jurisdictions have released the people that they wanted to release, we're also reviewing the list of the jails to see who else might be eligible for bail relief and where else a judge has determined that people can come out as long as they pay their cash bail. We only step in once cash bail has been set and there's been a determination by the system that this person is bailable, that this person can get out. The only thing that stands between them and freedom is having enough money in their bank account. So how many people have you helped so far since the crisis started? So two weeks after COVID really, it became clear, was going to have an incredible nationwide impact. We spent a couple weeks focusing our efforts and our staff on advocacy We tried to join together to persuade jurisdictions to release as many people as possible. And we watched what happened. And like I said, in every jurisdiction we were in, we were seeing unprecedented numbers of release. That was heartening. That took about two or three weeks. And now we are actually moving our operations, our work from what we used to do, which was go to the jail, interview a client face-to-face, pay bail, work with clients in person. We've been trying to adapt our operations to minimize the risk of inadvertently carrying the virus into a jail or obviously putting our staff in harm's way as well. And we've been very, very fortunate to be working with a lot of people on the ground in these systems who've been willing to work with us to make sure we can continue our work, but to do it virtually. Last Friday, we actually started an emergency bailout in Cook County, which may be one of the next hotspots for COVID-19. Cook County is the largest single site jail in the country, and COVID cases were rapidly expanding. So we put a lot of our resources there, and we're hoping to bring home somewhere between 500 and 1,000 people just this month out of Cook County Jail. Wow, that's, uh, that's a big effort. What do you think needs to happen in the next few weeks that would be the most effective to avoid the worst outcomes? This is an unprecedented time and a historic event, and that we will all be judged on our response. How did we respond to protect our society's most vulnerable people and most vulnerable communities? And people that are locked in jail who don't have enough money to pay their bail overwhelmingly come from low-income communities of color and low-income communities across this country. And so we have a moral obligation to get out in front of it, to act with urgency, and to bring people home from jails who are simply there because they can't pay their bail. Imagine what it would be like to be stuck in a jail cell, right, with several people in your cell. And knowing that it's not a matter of when the virus enters the jail, but you know it is going to enter the jail. There's not a jail in the country that doesn't have this virus already in it. One of the unexpected effects of this pandemic may be a faster shift to decarceration, finally. This crisis highlights how unsafe jails were and how much more deadly they will become. And so really, it is the moment to act. People should be able to contact your elected officials and your prosecutors and urge them to take action before it's too late. 
contribute to our national revolving bail fund so we can get more people out faster or to other local community funds that they know about. It's really important that we all act now and that we act really quickly before we can't act any longer. I think we're all wondering how the pandemic will finally end. And once it does, what our world will look like. It's pretty obvious that the recovery will be slow and painful for the poor, not just here in America, but all over the world. My hope is that the most dysfunctional aspects of our society, the sticky things that keep the poor in poverty, will be dismantled once and for all. That's a tall order, but perhaps early positive signs in housing the homeless and releasing those who are incarcerated only because they can't afford bail are a taste of things to come. I hope our collective response to this global nightmare will help us remedy some of the glaring flaws it has exposed in our political, economic, and healthcare systems. Thanks for listening to this special episode and tune in tomorrow for our conversation with Mark Jacobson about viable, clean energy solutions. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Zumbul. Additional production by Brooke Sayan. Listen to us online at futurehindsight.com or your favorite streaming service. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.